16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, after which we will read from Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, which deals with the marks of the true church. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 16. And here the Apostle speaks of the church of Jesus Christ as well. As we find in those opening verses with all of those references to one. And then he talks about the gifts of office bearers that are provided by Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord. And then he gives a reason for this. Why, why should we have officers in the church? So let's hear these words together now in Ephesians 4. Beginning at verse 1, hear the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to the Belgic Confession, Article 29, that's page 185, 186, in our Forms and Prayers books, 185, 86, 87 actually. And then page 866 in our Trinity Psalter Hymnals, Article 29, which deals with the Marks of the True Church. We're continuing to focus our attention on the work of the Spirit in the ministry of the Church. We've talked about that global, universal Catholic Church, Holy Catholic Church, that we are to belong to it joyfully, serving the Lord willingly. We're going to talk about what distinguishes false true from false church, and then also the government and the order and discipline of the Church before we talk about the sacraments. So Article 29 deals with the marks of the true church, and there we confess this. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. We are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it, even though they are physically there. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments 
as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or to the left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, to whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ, does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word, it rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, years ago when um, I was a member of the Redeemer College Concert Choir, we would travel parts of Canada to sing, and often in churches. And those churches, some were old, some were new, some were large, some were small. But you could usually distinguish or separate the churches into two categories. There were churches buildings that look like churches, buildings that sound like churches. And then there were everything else, buildings that were trying very hard not to look like a church or to look like some modern version of a church. Maybe you've seen churches like that around today too. You can go and see new churches, new congregations and their buildings, and you can't tell if it's the uh, fulfillment center for Amazon or if it's a church. You don't know whether it's one or the other. Churches used to look like churches. They used to distinguish themselves as churches. It's so much so that there are still uh, small congregations, small buildings, small church buildings within our community, in in any case, that were once churches, have been converted now into homes. And you can tell, even though they've been converted and there's all sorts of renovations been done and all sorts of things have been added or taken away, but you can still see that used to be a church. It used to still be a place of worship. Because you can distinguish, you can characterize churches or should be able to characterize churches very easily. Be able to identify that's a church and that's not a church. Not just in their architecture, but in the marks that they are that they express in their activity and ministry within the world. That's what Article 29 wants to teach us about. That's what the Word of God shows us as well. When we think about what is the church, we think, of course, in terms of the largest possible context, the global church, the holy Catholic church. But now where does that church gather? Where is that church found? There are, of course, lots of church buildings Which one of those buildings, which one of those gatherings is in fact 
a faithful, a true church, a church that belongs to this large company of the believers. Now, now the, the, the author of the Catechism rightly begins by saying, you know, we're talking here uh, about the church uh, as, it, as it was, or as it is rather, uh, not as we want it to be. And, it, and, and, and the author of the, the, the Confession speaks in a very specific context. If you, if you think about the time in which Guido de Brez writing in the 16th century, and you think about all the time before that, there was essentially, up until about 1,000, there was 1,000 A.D., there was only one church. And even after 1,000 A.D., there, there was a very specific line drawn. There were those churches over there in the east, and then there were these churches over here in the west. But there was only one Christian church. There wasn't many churches. And so there was really only one church. And, and if you were asked, which is the true and faithful church, you just pointed at the church building. Well, that one, that's the Christian church. It's not a mosque. It's not a temple. It is the church. It's not a synagogue. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It was very easy, you might say, very, very simple to do. Where's the true and faithful church? Well, it's this one because this one belongs to the Roman Catholic Church. But then the days of the Reformation came and all sorts of trouble was unleashed upon the world because now all of a sudden there are many gatherings, many congregations, many different groups. There were these over here that were, were Baptist and over there that were Lutheran and over here that were Calvinists and, and then there were those Catholics or those Anglicans and all of a sudden this multiplicity of churches made things difficult. Which is the true and faithful church? Which is the one that is indeed a representation of the place or of the congregation of of Christ that gathering of true christian believers who are putting their trust in Jesus Christ knowing which church was true and which was not became challenging because you could no longer judge whether a church was faithful based on its denominational affiliation you couldn't just say, well, this is a Roman Catholic church, therefore it must be good. Or this is a Calvinist church, therefore it must be good. Even if a church identified itself as church, said we are a church of Jesus Christ, something like, you might say, the Mormons, the church of the Latter-day Saints, as they say. You would still have to say, even though you call yourself a church, you're not a true church. Saying you're a true and faithful church isn't the same thing as being one. All of a sudden it became challenging for the church to have to distinguish which was a faithful congregation and which was not. And the congregation itself made that challenging because churches, as the confession rightly reminds us, are a mixed company. That is, there are within every church those that genuinely believe in Jesus Christ and those that are, as the confession describes them, hypocrites. Those that do not genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. Go to church, go through the motions, say the right words, but they are not genuinely Christian. And then it becomes difficult to simply pull the membership because you could, you could see a church filled with people that are hypocritical in their walk, who are disingenuous in their faith. Maybe during the week they don't show the passion for Christ that they ought. Don't genuinely love or trust the Lord as they ought. Don't genuinely live as they ought. Which no one, by the way, should be comfortable with. I mean, if we know anyone within our midst that's not living the Christian life in a consistent way, who's acting more consistent with unbelief than with faith, if we know somebody in our own fellowship that is not living as they ought, we ought to do something about it. We ought to challenge them to make their faith genuine. We ought to encourage them to live their lives under the rule of Jesus Christ. 
But the temptation becomes that we should judge congregations by pulling the membership by saying, is this group of people good or not? This is a true and faithful church if its membership achieves a measure of piety, if a preponderance of its members are in fact pious. It becomes challenging then when we meet these unsavory members and then to say about that congregation, it can't be a true and faithful church because that guy, that girl, that woman or man, can you believe that they're a member of that church? Do you know what they've done? That can't be a very good church then. But judging a church is not simply a matter of observing its members. And thus it was difficult for the people of Guido de Bray's day, the people of the Belgic Confessions day, to be able to discern which is a true and faithful church. And I don't think it's any easier today in that respect. The importance of diligent discernment when it comes to which is a true and faithful church is not diminished since the 16th century. After all, we live in a far more fluid society. In Guido's day, people would rarely find themselves in another community, in another physical, geographical context. They might move a town over this way or a town over that way, but they did not move from country to country. They didn't immigrate to places. They didn't travel all over the country. They lived in a relatively narrow uh, Uh, geographical space we however find ourselves interacting with lots of different congregations with many different communities and in fact may find ourselves members of churches repeatedly multiple times over the course of our lifetime because we live in a very fluid society and even if we do not find ourselves moving like that we do have access in our day to an almost limitless a a number of speakers, of voices, of worship services that we can participate in or can observe, can peek in through our phones or through our uh, TVs as we watch the services online. Indeed, we're starting to see, aren't we, the rise of the digital church community, which begins to add a wrinkle to this question of true and faithful church. And we want to be able in our own context to have confidence within our own church That it is, in fact, a church following Jesus Christ. We want to belong to a fellowship that puts Jesus first. That's challenging to to do and and may be tempting, or we might be tempted rather, to argue about what that means. But, But we need to have confidence, don't we, I think, as a congregation that we belong to a place where the grace of God is poured out, where the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit is found, where we can be certain that we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and where we are being called to genuine faith and holiness in Him. All of which is to suggest that the need for judging true from false in this world in terms of church congregation remains a very vital thing remains something that we must still do today as our article reminds us for we believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of god what is the true church now the language of this article has in the history of the church engendered rather significant debate much of that debate has been less pastoral and colder and more calculating than it ought to be than it it would have been in the days of Guido de Brev, for sure. 
We begin to wonder and ask ourselves, is that denomination of churches, is that a good one or a bad one? Do they meet our standards or do they not? If you join that church, are you leaving the church of Jesus Christ? The language of this article has been, in my humble opinion, inappropriately applied in way too many ways. Inappropriately applied to denominations, first of all. It's not meant to be applied to denominations. It's meant to be applied to local churches. And when we say, therefore, that that denomination of churches is either good or bad, true or false, we apply this article in an inappropriate way. All of which is to suggest that instead of being gracious and grateful to our Savior, who keeps His church secure against even all the gates of hell, and rejoicing when we find a company of God's people, wherever they might belong, whatever denomination or church they may belong to, instead of celebrating God's continuing work in those places, we tend to use this article as a club to exert our authority. Our family has had opportunity in the Netherlands to worship in two churches. One that has historically, wonderfully reformed, has a great lineage and pedigree, and is no longer in existence because it has chased after cultural significance and left the Word of God behind. The other is in the most liberal denomination in the Netherlands. And it is a wonderfully faithful church. A true church. A church where the Word of God and the sacraments and discipline are administered. And that is a thing to rejoice in and to be encouraged by and to pursue. The distinctive significance of the true and faithful church is not so that we can look down our noses and judge others the way we want, but rather to see the way that the Lord is working and to submit to His grace and goodness in our own context as well and within our own congregation. And that approach to this article changes the way that we pursue the various marks of the true and faithful church. Paragraphs 3 and 4 in our article tell us that the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. That the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel, makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them, and it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, says the author, it governs itself according to the pure word of God. There are three marks that are here spoken of, and what we are looking at are the distinctives of a true and faithful church. Which is different, by the way, than asking, what are the marks of a church we like? Or put another way, these marks are the priorities that Christ has established and instituted in His congregations, not necessarily the things that we desire or want within our congregations. Now you need to appreciate that because we do live in a culture and in a context that is so constantly telling us that our feelings, our experiences, our desires are the right ones. They are the ones that should be acknowledged and valued and satisfied. And living in that culture, we can begin to believe that whether it's in business, whether it's at home with our parents, whether it's at school, that everyone should exist for the making of us happy. And that includes then the church. And so then we look at churches, we seek out churches that make us happy, that are what we want or what we think is important. And of course we should want certain things in our church, and we should look out for for a place where we are both challenged and encouraged, where we are both blessed, built up, and reminded of our need of Jesus Christ. 
There should be a personal response and a personal passion for our church, but it must follow after the standard of Christ as He's revealed it in His Word. For God has made clear that churches ought to be distinguished by this, that they are Word-centered above all else. Notice that about these three marks. Preaching of the Word, pure administration of the Word, that's an obvious Word-centered element. But the, God, the, the sacraments must also be pure as Christ has administered or instituted them. And the sacraments are also words made flesh, you might say. Words made tangible. They are words of God to us concerning His grace for us. And discipline is the discipline according to God's Word. We, we don't get to discipline according to our expectation, to according to our desire, according to our plan. No, they are all Word-centered qualities. The church is to be Word-centered. And the administration of these things is to be pure, says the author. The Gospel and the sacraments at least must be pure. The pure preaching of the Word, the pure administration of the sacraments. Now notice, pure is not perfect. It is not a perfect administration of the sacraments. not a perfect preaching of the Gospel. Nor is pure to be taken as historical or cultural distinctives. We can sometimes do that when we think our preaching style is the right one. Our way of administering the sacraments is the only way. If you've ever had opportunity to worship in other communities, and especially if you've been with other communions as they've celebrated the Lord's Supper, you'll notice the differences and you'll still see, hopefully, a dignity and an, a, a respectfulness and a sincerity in it all. We had opportunity to do this in, the, in Scotland when we were there. They have a communion week. They go to church every day before Lord's Supper. And their Lord's Supper services can be two or three hours long. And the way they distribute the elements and the way that they speak of these things, it's different than the way we do it. But difference isn't wrong. It's still a pure administration of the sacrament. Because pure focuses not upon us, but upon Jesus. Jesus has instituted these things. Jesus has assigned these things. Jesus has given these things to us. And a pure preaching of the Word and a pure administration of the sacraments, a faithful administration of discipline, are those that, that seek to honor Jesus, that seek to please Him above all else. Indeed, we ought to ask ourselves when it comes to these things, is that what we come to hear? Is that what we come to experience? Is that what we come to enjoy when it comes to worshiping the Lord each Lord's Day? Do we come with the expectation that we're going to hear the gospel sound in every message that we hear in the church? Do we expect to be told again about our need of Jesus Christ and His provision in such a powerful and wonderful way as this? Do we come to the sacraments in the experience or in the expectation that these things will nourish us, will equip us, will indeed affect and influence our lives? Or are they just cultural institutions? Are they just rituals that we go through? Are we hungering and thirsting after the grace of God? Because God in His wisdom has chosen to give us in these most ordinary ways these blessed 
gifts of grace. Indeed, they are also ordinary. Isn't that also remarkable? They are word-centered. They are to be administered in purity. But notice that they are all also ordinary. We so desperately, like Naaman of old, want something a little more powerful, a little more compelling in our lives. You remember Naaman, he came and, and he was to dip three times in the Jordan in order to be cleaned of his uh, um, uh, leprosy. And he was so offended. Why? Why? There are better, better rivers in, in, in Babylon where I'm from. Why should I in that muddy creek of the Jordan River? Absolutely not. And we can think the same thing when it comes to the ministry of Christ and of His Word. We want something dynamic. We want something just absolutely inspiring. We want to be able to come in out of church every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, just amazed and moved and on fire. And the ordinary means of God's grace, bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, water in baptism, words spoken from the Scripture in preaching, can sometimes seem to us too ordinary. They can be overlooked. The same way Jesus was. Jesus was ordinary. He was just a man. And people didn't see Him for who He was. Didn't see the power of His grace. And overlooked Him and so missed His saving work. You think about when He was with His family in His village and so many did not believe in Him. So many did not acknowledge Him that He did not do many miracles there. How many come into the church and expect something fantastic and leave bored? No longer blessed, not because blessing hasn't been there, for the Lord is faithful to His promises. The Lord has ordained these means as the ways in which His Word communicates His grace to His people so that those who drink deeply of these things are indeed built up in their most holy faith. But if we leave this place unmoved, It is not because God has not kept His promise. It's because we have missed the wonder of His grace. We have expected different than what He has provided. And indeed, the Lord calls us to submit to His plan and purpose. That's why church discipline is also so important. Church discipline is not about keeping people, keeping the congregation in a a certain cultural context kicking people out that we don't like, punishing people for making mistakes. Church discipline is about shepherding. It's about leading. It's about correcting those that are straying, those that are leaving the faith. Do we expect that each member of our congregation will be held accountable to the grace of God, will be reminded of the privilege they've been given and called to surrender their lives to the Lord? Is discipline an important element of our church's distinctive? Is it a valuable ministry? Or is it a burden? A thing we wish we never had to do? A thing that we wish we'd never have to hear about? It is easy for us, especially in our very relativistic, our very tolerant age, to say, wait a second, wait a second. How can can we discipline somebody who's who's struggling in this respect or struggling in that respect? We should just let them go. It's it's not easy. Nobody likes to do it. Why, Why bother? We ought to bother because Christ came on earth to die for us. Because Christ came to pursue us. Because Christ came to love us. And we ought to love each other with that same passion. And when we see a brother or sister 
heading off in a wrong direction. We have to reach out to them and grab them and say, come back, come back to us here. Stay with us. Stay in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's the center of all of these things, isn't it? Our enjoyment and experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Each of these marks is themselves worthy of discussion and debate. But what we ought to see in all of them is the ministry of our God and Savior into our lives. To be sure, the longer we look at something, the more faults and flaws we'll see in it. Sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. The preaching becomes bland or boring. The administration of the sacraments isn't done the right way. The right form isn't read. The right words aren't spoken. Either the wrong people are being disciplined or they're not being disciplined at all. But for a moment, take a step back and look at a congregation like our own. Look at those congregations that you visit on vacation or that you visit when you're with family and friends and ask yourself some basic questions. Ask yourself, is the Word of God taken seriously here? Is the the preaching of the Word central to the worship that's done? Is the, the sacraments administered in a manner that is consistent with what God has revealed in His Word? Are people held genuinely to an account when it comes to their lifestyle? Is the Word of God taken seriously here? Not, is it perfectly preached, perfectly applied, perfectly administered? But is it central to everything this church does? Can we say about this congregation, in short, it governs itself according to the pure Word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. Our concern must not be ticking boxes and being technically correct. We ought to desire the grace of God to flood our lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren, friends and family. We ought to want it to flow through our hearts and into our community. We want to see God glorified. His church growing spiritually and numerically. We would want to see the world hear the Word. And if that's our desire, then this is the way. This is what we must demand of our church above all else. Not exclusively. We can demand other things too. This has always got to be our brass tacks. This has to be the thing we insist on. We want to hear, we want to see Jesus Christ in our congregation. And when we, when we demand that, when we expect that, when we long for that, then we are blessed. Paragraphs 5 and 6 are often missed, missed in our discussion of Article 29 of this Belgic Confession. We talk about the marks of the true church. We talk about which churches belong and which ones don't. We draw all sorts of very sharp lines and that sort of thing. And we forget that those who are of the church are recognized by the distinguishing marks of Christians. Not only does this article talk about the marks of the true church, it also talks about the marks of a, of a Christian. We can easily, often, list the three marks of a true church. Can we list as many of the marks of the true Christian? Marks of the true Christian says these paragraphs are faith, repentance, and righteousness. Corresponding to the three marks of the true church, those who come desiring to participate in congregations that are faithful in this way hear the gospel and put their trust in the Lord. They experience the sacraments and are strengthened in their walk with the Lord 
And they desire to live righteously and in the way of obedience. So that where the church of Jesus Christ maintains her distinctives, her members share or experience these distinctives in their own lives. Even as a mother blesses her daughter and a daughter looks like or follows after the pattern of her mother. Now again, not perfection. We all struggle in our confidence in Christ and we don't flee from sin as we ought. We don't love our neighbor or the Lord as we should. And this is why we need the church and her ministry on this side of glory because we do stray and need to be restored. We do struggle and need to be encouraged. We do doubt and need to be assured. But at the same time, we ought to expect that those who belong to a true and faithful church where the Word of God is taken seriously and Jesus Christ the head is held in high regard, we ought to expect, indeed demand, that those who belong to this church evidence the marks of God's grace at work within them. We ought to expect from the membership of the church greater devotion and greater ever-increasing dependence upon the grace of God. We have to expect of the church an increasing desire to put to death the old nature, to bring to life the new, a desire to repent of what is wicked and to pursue what is righteous. We ought to expect that when we belong to the church of Jesus Christ, we will be changed. So much of the church in our culture has lost this focus on the redemption of sinners, the saving of souls. So much of the church in our culture has become almost exclusively about community and about social justice. And of course the church is about community and social justice. That's also true. But it's become almost the overriding distinction, isn't it? Churches proudly displaying their position on social issues so that all the world can know that we stand in the right position on these matters forgetting that they have been called to minister the Word of God into the lives of their members so that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they ought to be lifting the eyes of their congregation ever heavenward to see at the very right hand of the King of glory, the Son who redeemed them by His death on the cross. We ought to expect of the church a lively, word-focused ministry so that we can expect of its members a lively, word-centered life. That to belong to the church ought to come with the expectation that we are going to grow. We are going to change. We are going to repent. We are going to improve. We are going to love and serve. We are going to stand out from a world in sin. And indeed, we are going to stand out as lights in a dark world. We have opportunity, you see, each and every week to go out into this world and to be different, to be distinctive, to share our distinction, and to call others to join with us in this grace. The closeness of the teachings of the marks of the Christian and the marks of the true church illustrates that there ought to be this this healthy balance in the congregation between its administration of grace and its expression of grace within the world. Not that if the church is one, then the members will mechanically or automatically be the other, but rather that where the grace of God is poured out, there God's people are being changed, equipped, and renewed. 
And there the light of the gospel is going out into a dark world. And there many are being challenged to come and put their trust in the Lord. This challenges all of us, doesn't it? This ought to challenge all of us to continue as congregation in this place to be faithful. That, That really ought to be the first thing that we do with Article 29. Instead of looking at others and saying, now is that church true and faithful? Is that church true and faithful? We ought to ask ourselves, where are we? Where are we in our priority of preaching and sacraments and discipline? Because where the leadership of the church and indeed where the membership of the church no longer demands these things, there the church begins to falter and fail and fall away. And what do we expect of each other? What do we expect of membership within the church? Do we expect it to be a place where we're going to be challenged to renew our commitment to Christ and to walk in new and and powerful ways to the Lord so that the world can see that there is indeed a God who saves? This is the thing that we need to ask ourselves about our church. This is what Article 29 challenges us to reflect on as a church. To first of all say, are we? Are we being faithful to the Savior who's redeemed us? And are we walking in the light of His Word and will? That's something that we can always do better at. That's why the Reformation had as one of its mottos not only all of those solas, sola fide and grazia and all the rest, but also that the Reformed church is always reforming. That is, always taking the light of God's Word and always asking, how can we be more faithful? How can we be more close to Christ in the way that we minister His grace, in the way that we walk in His way. When we become contented, when we become careless, when we become casual about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then the church is doomed. But when we desire it and drink from it deeply, when we demand it and insist upon that our hearts be fed by the Word of God, that we be held close to Him by His servants within our midst, then we experience God's saving grace in fresh and new ways and walk ever close to Him. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for these ministries that You give to us. We're grateful for the gift of Your Word that governs all that we do. And we pray that You would ever keep this pulpit faithful. There are so many pulpits in this world where once the powerful good news of the Gospel has gone forth, and now, Lord, there is nothing. Certainly nothing close to what there once was. And it's easy for us to look at those other congregations and think that will never happen here. But, Lord, we know that it can. So we pray that You would keep us ever focused on the Word Keep us focused on that Word as it's administered in the sacraments. Keep us focused on that Word as it's it's cultivated into our lives through the discipling of the church. And help us as congregation, help us as members of the congregation to expect that our membership within the church is is going to require our growing, our stretching, our renewing, our reforming. That we're going to expect, Lord, to be challenged And to be called, to be comforted by your good news. So bless us as a congregation, Lord, and keep us ever faithful to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.